So I wanted to say a bit about uh, just kind of orienting, orienting to retreat and silence and um, for for so many years my main association with uh, with retreat was uh, work you know like more intense than normal work like this was really work really uh, kind of intense and all about letting go and and it is that in some ways uh, and there's another side of it too, which is much more like we're here to dwell and abide in, in goodness, you know, and, uh, to have this kind of expanse of time is really quite a privilege. And there's, there's a lot of momentum of goodness just in the intentions that we're bringing here, this space, which is essentially paid for by love of one kind or another and uh, people have invested in in uh, people like yourselves to to create a, a center like this and a space where we can practice together and so um, there's an aspect of there's this there's an intensity about retreat but there's also this really deeply luxurious kind of aspect of it that we're we're kind of marinating in this field of care and uh, goodwill and so we're here i would say to to abide and to learn Now, there's something about that, that kind of the openness of time that uh, makes us a little anxious and makes us want to sort of plot out what's going to happen, plot out our learning, plot out our insight, plot out our particular letting go, whatever it may be, right? And so we kind of wind up, uh, we sort of subdivide the days and the, the week into little manageable pieces that feel like, okay, I'll do this piece, you know. And, but the truth is that it's wide open, you know. And this time is wide open and for you. And um, nothing actually needs to happen really whether it is our our first retreat or uh, our 50th we come with expectations and kind of some of them are explicit some of them are implicit what's going to happen what, what am I supposed to learn but the beauty of the Dharma is that it can't be anticipated. The, the beauty of, of learning really is that it can't, we can't see it in advance. And so in a really important sense, we're, we're here to be surprised. We're here to be surprised 
by ourselves, by the path, by life itself. And what that means is that we, there's a certain kind of, of willingness, willingness involved in being surprised. A certain kind of curiosity and sincerity and a kind of openness to like, what, what is this path? Like, what am I doing here? What is retreat? What is, who, who am I? What's going on with this whole human condition here? And we know all of that stuff in one way, but that knowing gets a little stale. And so retreat is actually a way of letting, letting some of the, our ordinary, the ordinary ground go. It's a way of um, putting down some of our notions of what the Dharma, what these, this path of teachings is. And so our tendency, of course, is going to be, we we kind of turn ourselves into this big project, you know. Uh, Retreat is a project and we are a project too. Um, But I I like to encourage people like, you you were not a self-improvement project. Like that mindset, just we can actually put that down and instead just abide and open to learning, be willing to be surprised. This is a, uh, there's a kind of dynamic that's that's evolving. I notice in my life is that um, My life is feeling simultaneously much smaller, but also more significant. So feeling much smaller, you know, sometimes looking up at the stars and, and the, it's, it's pretty, there's not a lot of light pollution here sometimes and we really can see a lot in the sky and looking up at those stars and knowing that uh, some of the stars are probably, you know, millions of light years away. They may not even exist anymore. And it's the light that's taken literally millions of years to reach our eyes. And I look up at that and uh, it seems like almost impossible to worry about the kind of narrow concerns of one human life in the vastness of space and time. And knowing how, you know, as the Buddha asked for us to come into a deep connection with our own life being finite, this kind of blink in geological time. And that kind of smallness, the smallness of my life, 
doesn't have the effect of creating some kind of um, nihilism or not caring in some way. The, the effect that it's really has on my heart is like, it's kind of like, okay, what else are we going to do but love? So we're here to uh, do some of that together. Lou, uh, Lou Welch says, uh, beat poet says, step out onto the planet, draw a circle, hundred feet round. Inside the circle are 300 things nobody understands and maybe nobody's ever really seen. How many can you find? This practice is uh, the environment, the simplicity. There's an aspect of um, we are getting quite simple. We're being, there's an aspect of renunciation but as as one teacher, a monk, uh, Matthew Ricard said, like to renunciation is not about uh, you know not ultimately about giving up that which truly brings happiness. That would be insane, right? Actually, um, it's it's about touching into the human condition more directly in a way. So this is, this is Ajahn Amara, a monk uh, in the Thai forest tradition, one that, that actually is taught here not so long ago. Um, so Amara has been in, in robes for it's now over 30 years. And so he writes, the fact that the Buddha was a monk uh, can get lost. Of course, people are free to practice as they want. Nonetheless, many Western Dharma centers seem to marginalize renunciation, which is vital to the whole process of Dharma practice and enlightenment. It's like opening up the chest, detaching all the veins and arteries, carefully removing the heart, and maintaining the body on a life support system. One can't help but wonder, is this thing really alive? Is this thing really going to carry on? Obviously, my perspective is slanted. I'm a card-carrying monk. But in wedging Dharma teachings into a comfortable life, one may be missing something that's crucial to the Dharma. I would suggest that people look closely at this. Is the Dharma something that I tack onto my life or is it something that I offer myself up to? It's just like nature. Do we see it as a pretty and refreshing adjunct to my world? Or do we see that all that we are mentally and physically is inescapably part of nature? When you relinquish control and take on the simplicity of the renunciate life, 
you have the opportunity to reflect on all the things to which you've become habituated. You take on restrictions in order to contact the most profound dimension of your nature. And so, hope, on the one hand, we hope everything is provided for you. And this is a great building and place and we want you to have what you need. And the, the spirit of the, the week is, is simplifying, the kind of simplifying the tendency of the proliferation of, of desire. And so some people might ask the question, like, why would one ever go on retreat? Like, well, maybe you had people ask you that, like, why, why, why would you go on retreat? Why would you deprive yourself of various things? But my question is more like, what do they think they're avoiding in not going on retreat? So I don't think we'll, we discover anything that's very foreign about the human condition. This is, we're just simplifying in a way so we can see more clearly. So we can see what the mind does when it has fewer of its habitual outlets. So that we can actually develop ultimately more and more trust in our own hearts. Now we're doing this together doing this together like and as was said in the hall the community hall at the beginning um, you know we're all actually contributing to how to the field that that uh, we'll all sense and I, I like to think of of uh, of retreats a bit like they're like uh, these like weird community art projects like and uh and we're actually all and it's not like it's not gonna be highly manicured kind of thing you know um it's gonna it's gonna be the kind of art project that has all the joy and all the sorrow but next week you know, when we sit down there again in the community hall to say bye to one another, uh, we'll, we'll know that we've done something together. I, I have no doubt. You will know that we've actually created something. And that's happened not, uh, not because of what Nikki or I said or something. It's, it will happen because of everything that we're each investing in the practice of looking. Now, the, the last piece, which is to, uh, to kind of, yeah, the guidelines that actually allow this art project to, to unfold um, are the kind of agreements that we make to one another. 
and the way that this is is uh, traditionally couched is like this is this, these are the the precepts to which we agree like this is the kind of intentional community the kind of project we're doing together requires a certain kind of uh, of uh, safety and and so we actually agree together to to abide by certain ethical uh, commitments as a way really of um, of of making the community of making creating a lot of safety in the room and what it actually does when we commit to like careful ethical conduct what what that does in in limiting certain kinds of behavior certain kinds of harm what it actually does is it frees us up to experience even more of what comes up inside the safety outside actually frees us up to uh, to turn inwards in a more radical way Because we've all agreed to these kind of uh, this objective code of behavior that I'll share briefly, and given that, what that means is if we're committed not to harming each other through behavior, whatever feelings or impulses or conflicts arise within us, it's okay. There's space for all of that. So this is a kind of cornerstone of, of our work, and it's a, certainly an expectation uh, of the teachers too. And the rules are specified, uh, yeah, usually uh, five, five precepts, um, and they're, they're animated thoroughly by the theme of non-harm. And so, so very, very concretely, it means uh, it means not killing intentionally to be to be mindful of uh, of not not harming any any being intentionally, not intentionally stepping on an ant or killing a bug or something, and it means uh, it means not not taking what's not offered. You know, it's like very nice to not worry about it, one's stuff, you know, to know that it's safe. It means not not acting out uh, sexual, sexual desire, which is very different than not, not feeling or not exploring the sexual feelings that may be arising. But there's a commitment to to celibacy and uh, not not having any sexual contact or masturbating. And the idea is not is not that sexual energy is inherently problematic, but uh, but that this is actually a really rich opportunity to explore how this energy arises in you, what it does to the body and mind. We can, you know, when we're acting out desire, 
it actually obscures the mechanisms. You can't see it as clearly. But when there's this gesture of renunciation, we can see it more clearly. And you may be able to learn, uh, you know, there's like this, this phrase, the Vipassana romance of falling, kind of falling in love with somebody in the silence and projecting a lot and sort of uh, this realm of a lot of projection. And you may, who knows, you may fall in love with somebody in the silence. And usually we're, people are kind of dismissive of that, uh, that phenomena. It's just like pure projection. But um, real romances actually imitate Vipassana romances too. And so you actually <laughs> can learn a lot <laughs> about love and sexual connection and longing and desire in the silence. We really can. this, the fourth of uh, uh, refraining from, from wrong speech or, you know, being deceptive in some way. And this most, most of the time we're, we're formally entering silence. And, um, but when in those times, maybe at during work meditation, you just want to be conscious of, uh, be careful with your speech. And then lastly, um, we're agreeing to, to not, um, abuse intoxicants, so drug, you know, alcohol or drugs that are not prescribed, um, that, that our, our effort here is in seeing clearly. Now, this doesn't mean important caveat, like any prescribed medicine is, please continue taking, but this, this refers to, uh, kind of recreational use here that, uh, um, the other four precepts become a lot shakier when we're drunk or high, for example. And so the Buddha was, was pretty clear, like, this is, we want to be careful. This is kind of opening the door potentially to complications. And so on retreat, we abstain. So this is, um, these they are rules in some way, but to, to me, they, it, it, I'm, I'm like an anarchist. I'm not a big fan of rules, right? Actually, when you get down to it, but these, these feel, it, it feels like, uh, no, this is actually just how we create refuge, how we become a refuge for one another, how we actually become, uh, safe for one another. And so, they can be formulated as rules, but they're, I, for me, it's, it's really a commitment to creating a atmosphere of care that's conducive to, to spiritual unfolding. Sound okay? Yeah. Any, any questions about any of that? Thank you.
so with the conversation about the precepts, how we we offer each other and ourselves safety. As Matthew beautifully talked about, supporting each other, supporting ourselves and each other in this practice that we do this coming week. We enter the formal, the, the sacred space of a retreat, often by taking the precepts and the refuges. So I'll take a moment to talk about what the refuges are as this this ritualized, formalized way of entering the retreat space. So traditionally taking the taking refuge in the Buddha Dharma Sangha is what is talked about. Now, I think for each of us to really explore our own relationship to what these mean, what is the Buddha for each of us, what is Dharma, what is Sangha. So I make some some suggestions, some offerings. So, So Buddha, one can think of taking refuge in the Buddha as as the historical figure who apparently lived 2,600 years ago. But another way that speaks to me is, is feeling into that, that humanity, that potential for awakening, that inner goodness, that potential in me, that potential that every single one of us has. So recognizing, recognizing that, taking refuge in that in that capability, in that potential, in that inner goodness. Me too, me too. Taking refuge in the Dharma, one could interpret that as the teachings, Dharma with the big D, the teachings that have been passed down, can also be interpreted as the natural law of things, the way things are the way things unfold, nature, it's all nature. We are nature. Our practice will unfold as nature. It has, has a lawful nature about it. So taking refuge, recognizing that, ah, recognizing the truth of all things, the, the way things unfold, the lawful nature of this world, trusting that. The last one, taking refuge in the Sangha. Again, one can think of that as the assembly of enlightened beings throughout ages. And one can also think of that as the Sangha right here, this beautiful Sangha right here in this room. This retreat will be so different if you were the only person in this room sitting, imagine. But sitting with others, walking with others, practicing with others, taking refuge in the support in the way through interdependence we'll be supporting each other. And we're all standing. This Sangha is a stand-in for the independence of a bigger Sangha out there, all of humanity that is supporting us in some ways, people who have supported us to be here, recognizing, trusting in that goodness, 
people who are here on this path with you, who've supported you. So in that way, I invite you to enter the sacred space of taking refuge in the Buddha Dharma Sangha. And we'll chant it in Pali. And if you like, what we usually do is to bring our hands together in front of our heart. And, and just to say actually a word about that, you'll see a lot of bowing. You might see Matthew and I bowing. You might see other people bowing. Find your own relationship to that, to what that means. When I bring my hands in front of my heart, in front of myself, I'm bringing my, all of my intentionality, aligning it with my heart. And when I bow, it's an expression of gratitude for me gratitude in this moment for everything that has been. So find your own relationship. So if you like to bring your hand to your heart, we'll, uh, we'll do it together actually. We won't do it call and response. We'll just do it together. Namo tassa bhagavato arahato Sama Sambuddhasa Namo Tassa Bhagavato Arahato Sama Sambuddhasa Namo Tassa Bhagavato Arahato Sama Sambuddhasa Buddham Saranam Gachami Dhammam Saranam Gachami Sangam Saranam Gachami Dutiyampi Buddham Saranam Gachami Dutiyampi Dhammam Saranam Gachami Dutiyampi Sangam Saranam Gachami Tatiyampi Buddham Saranam Gachami Tatiyampi Dhammam Saranam Gachami Tatiyampi Sangam Saranam Gachami So I'd like to share a few words about the theme, the theme for the talks for this retreat. So as I mentioned downstairs at 8.30 in the morning, every 8.30 sit, our instructional sit is where we share the meditation instructions for the day. So come to that sit. Don't, don't, don't miss that one. And then at four o'clock every day uh, is the Dharma talk, where um, this week we've decided to explore the theme of seven factors of awakening. Mm, it's a lovely, lovely theme. So the seven factors of awakening are seven beautiful qualities of the heart and mind that develop 
as a fruit of practice. And as a part of practice, we, we cultivate them also. Both, they're both a fruit and they're a cultivation. So it's both. They're held in both ways, and we'll talk more about that. In Pali, the term is bojanga, the bojangas. I just like the term Pali. I want to drop that in, bojangas. It just makes me happy to say it, bojangas. So the bojangas are the frameworks that point us towards freedom, these qualities of the heart that... that, uh, a beautiful list of wholesome qualities that are support for for awakening, for freedom, for more ease in our lives. So they are not so far away. They 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 you have it as as I go through the list, we have all experienced some version, some some form of them in our daily life. So the seven are, I'll give you the list and I'll talk a little more about them and this week we'll explore them more thoroughly. So the seven are, the first one is mindfulness. The word in in Pali is sati, for those who like Pali words also. Sati, mindfulness. The second is investigation or dhamma vichaya, investigation of dhammas, of how things are. The third is energy, also known as uh, determination or persistence or effort. Virya is the Pali word. The fourth one, kind of the middle one, is joy or rapture, known as piti. The fourth one, no, the fifth one, is calm or relaxation, also known as tranquility, pasadi, pasadi, tranquility, calm of body and mind. Don't they sound lovely already? Yeah, okay, a couple more left. The, f- the sixth one is concentration of the mind, unification of the mind, also known as samadhi. The Pali word is samadhi. And the last one, which is in some ways the culmination, perhaps, is equanimity. Equipoise. Upeka. The word in Pali is upeka. Hmm. I'm actually delighting in just sharing the list with you. (laughs) We'll have fun this week. Hmm. So... So these seven, they are taught. Uh, they are. Um, they could be taught as, as flowing into an, one into another. Um, that is, as as one works on, on cultivating the first factor, which is mindfulness, and sati, and and um, and and. Um, developing, cultivating, being with with phenomena, being mindful of what arises and passes away. That can naturally naturally lead to a sense of curiosity because when you are being with with things as they are, then you naturally become curious about them. There's this investigation that comes like, wow, what's going on? 
What's that? Oh, look at that. Oh, that's interesting. Look at that thought. It just arose and passed away. Look at that, that energy, that sexual energy. Oh, look at that. That's the, oh, that, wow. Where is that? What st started that? It, curiosity comes up when you're being mindful of it, right? So that can naturally come up. And then, naturally, a sense of a feeling of um, this fat, the, the third factor of energy, um, or virya or effort because you're energized, you know, you're curious, you're energy, you're you're engaged in, in this investigation, in this in this looking at. So energy, you become more invigorated in this in this um, in this paying attention. It becomes interesting, it becomes juicy energy. You have more energy, you know. This is what you want to do. It's like when you're doing a hobby. You, you're interested, like right? there's energy there, that you're energized doing that. And when those are set in place, then joy arises. You really enjoy what you're doing. This is cool. This is interesting. This is fun. Joy, delight, also translated as rapture in some ways that can come up on retreat. These, this energetic delight in, in, in all... Um, in what the mind is doing, the mind can become really interested and take delight, really becomes joyous. It all becomes joyous. Pity arises. And with the arising of joy and pity can actually be quite a lot of zest, a lot of zest both in the body and in the mind. And that, when it actually, it can lead to, when it, when it calms down a little bit, when it smooths out, because joy can be really bubbly, right? When it actually a little calms down, ah, it can, the mind and body can really, really relax. Then that can lead to tranquility, to pasadi. The joy can naturally lead into a sense of calm. Ah, in fact, some people have experienced the most calm and tr feeling of tranquility, sense of tranquility on retreat after after the sense of, 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 of joy. Calm, relaxation, pasadi is then the, the groundwork, is the tilling of the soil for the mind to become really, really calm, really unified, really concentrated, really interested in whatever, it's, whatever it is investigating, whatever it's sitting on. The mind gets, can get really unified when the mind, mind and body have the sense of tranquility and calm. The mind gets really, really focused, really unified. Doesn't want to go anywhere. Doesn't want to think about this or plan about that or here and there. Just gets really, really unified, concentrated. Just really stays, really stays. It doesn't move. It just wants to stay. And that can lead to a sense of equanimity, opeka, um, being fully aware of all phenomena without either pulling away or, or reaching for it. Just being with all things, just sense of equanimity. This too, this too, this too. Ah, standing under all this, this too. So these factors can lead to one another. And it's also taught that the first three are factors that we we cultivate more actively mindfulness, investigation, which is that sense of curiosity, 
and energy, effort. Those three we can cultivate more. You know, you, you're sleepy, oh, you're falling asleep, oh, let me bring more energy. You realize you're just kind of sitting, you're bored, like, oh, let me bring more investigation. What's going on? What's new about the breath? What's new? What's happening? You can actually cultivate those three. And it is said that the first three then lead to the last five. And, and joy is kind of the pivot because the first three kind of lead to this joy that this, this rapture arising from the first three and then the rest of them kind of follow on their own. So you, you work for the first three and you get the rest for free. Okay. <laughs> Something like that. And also another way um, to, to relate to these factors is recognizing them actually helps with their cultivation. So if you actually, in your experience, you notice um, there, is, there is joy, there is delight, you're really enjoying breathing. Wow, that's delightful. You notice that joy. And it's, that joy is born from just the delight of the experience. It's not about you. You know, you got good news or you won the lottery. It's just internal. It's just the delight of being with. When you notice, when you bring attention to it, that actually helps with the cultivation. Similarly, with all of the other ones, with mindfulness, if you notice being mindful, ah, you notice that. Or say with tranquility, when it arises, when you notice your mind is really calm, when you notice your body is really calm, tranquility can be both in the body and the mind. When you notice that, pay attention to it. That can help with the cultivation. So that's kind of a preview of what's coming up this week. I'll just leave it at that. And tomorrow uh, afternoon at four, um, we'll start the series by discussing sati. And Matthew will be, will be doing that. So I want to leave you tonight with a poem for your practice, for your going to bed practice. It's called Eagle Poem, and it's by Joy Harjo. To pray you open your whole self, to sky, to earth, to sun, to moon, to one whole voice that is you. And know there is more that you can't see, can't hear, can't know except in moments, steadily growing and in languages that aren't always sound, but other, but other circles of motion. Like eagle that Sunday morning over Salt River, circled in blue sky in wind, swept our hearts clean with sacred wings. We see you, see ourselves and know that we must take the utmost care and kindness in all things. Breathe in, knowing we are made of all this, and breathe, knowing we are truly blessed because we were born and die soon within a true circle of motion, like eagle rounding out the morning inside us. We pray that it will be done in beauty, in beauty. Let's just sit together for a moment.
Wishing you a beautiful evening of rest in beauty, in beauty.